Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. This week, I am joined by the one and only Taryn Sharma. What's up, Taryn? What's up, Dan? There's no gang to say what's up to this week. That's because I have banned them from the podcast. I said this just this week. It's me and Taryn. We're having a reunion. The last time we had a show, Taryn, you know, we had a couple beverages and we had a lot of fun on the podcast. So I said, you know what? Dan and Taryn, we need a spinoff show. Let's have our own podcast this week. What do you say? I love it. Our banter is always good. And uh, you know what? I- I'm ready. Let's do it. Before we start, I had an interesting phone call today. So Taryn, as you know, I am uh, the incoming sports law professor at New York Law School. This is so interesting. I get to, this is New York Law School has not competed in the two-lane baseball arbitration competition. They've not competed in a lot of competitions. Maybe I'm like Braveheart. We're just leading them into battle of New York Law School. And we're going to try to do some really fun things, but I get a class. I can do an inter-school competition. I feel like the world is uh, my sports law oyster right now. That said, let us jump into our topics this week. We have four topics, and Taryn, because we have banned everyone else from the episode this week, we let you pick the order. So Taryn, as a special uh, tribute to you, I'm going to let you do the rundown this week. Oh, wow. All right. Well, so we've got some great topics this week. It's been a really packed sports law week. And uh, so first off, we're going to talk about Meyer Orbach, his group, Orbit. They've sued uh, Glenn Taylor and the Wolves. Uh, and so we're going to see if that's going to stop the A-Rod sale. Second, the fans, they've been crazy, Dan, in the return of fans to the arenas and stadiums. It's just been nuts. So we're going to touch on that. Finally, we've got a Braves doubleheader. Ozuna, first of all, obviously involved in, in some domestic violence allegations. And then second of all, the uh, fallout from the moved all-star game continues. That's something that we've had a little bit of uh, back and forth about. And so it'll be interesting to, to talk that over more now that the Braves, MLB and MLBPA are going to have to fight this in court. So Taryn, full disclosure, you picked this order and I, I like the way that you picked it. So let's, let's start with topic number one, which I know is a topic near and dear to your heart. This topic broke. It's becoming a trend this week. Friend of the show, AJ Perez over at Front Office Sports. I think he broke the story. I know it was the first time I saw it. A lawsuit between, we'll say, co-owners of the Minnesota Timberwolves, among a number of things they're asking for uh, damages, but they're also asking for injunctive relief to hold up the sale, the impending sale of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, you know, obviously an NBA team based in Minnesota, to their incoming owner. And who's their incoming owner, Taryn? Just any any guesses who the incoming owner is? Why don't I be like Anthony Edwards? I don't know who that is. Alex Rodriguez. Jennifer Lopez knows who that is. And uh, our friend Jose, our mutual friend, Jose Canseco, knows who that is. Jose Canseco, true story, follows you on Twitter, which I still can't wrap my head around. Yeah, friend, friend of the show. He's not a friend of the show. I make fun of Jose Canseco a lot. He's definitely not a friend. If he knew that you were affiliated with me, you would be unfollowed very quickly. But yeah, this is this is a big story, among other things. Obviously, you know, minority owners seeking money against one another is not that uh, atypical. We saw that last week uh, in the story we covered with the Tampa Bay Rays. Injunctions to try to stop the impending sale to a A-list owner like A-Rod, uh, that's, that's where their attention. So I know, Taryn, you've dug your heels into this story. Why don't you fill everybody in on what's going on and really what this, the heart of this lawsuit's about? Yeah, so there's two really big points with this Wolves sale. So obviously there's going to be a lot more attention paid to this because of who would own the team if this sale goes through, Alex Rodriguez and, and Mark Laurie, his uh, partner. And, and so that's one element of it. 
the largest minority owner is Meyer Orbach and his group Orbit can controls about 17% of the Timberwolves organization. That also includes the Lynx and I believe that it includes a G League team. So all of Glenn Taylor, who is the majority owner, all of his shares were going to be sold in a deal to Alex Rodriguez. And something that Taylor has said for a long time is that any deal that he makes, there's going to be a provision in there that contractually obligates the new owners to keep the team in Minnesota. And he said that numerous times, even most recently uh, when the, the news of the deal broke. However, Meyer Orbach not only alleges that that provision does not exist, that A-Rod and Mark Lurie would not be obligated to keep the team in Minneapolis, but also that his partnership agreement with Glenn Taylor included tagalong rights for Orbit, the holding company. And tagalong rights, for anybody that doesn't know, that's something that contractually protects minority owners. So an example would be if A and B are shareholders and A is the majority shareholder and A receives an attractive offer to sell their shares from C, then tagalong rights would mean that B, the minority owner, would also be able to sell to C at the prevailing rate. And so what Meyer Orbach is hoping in this case is that he can halt the sale until there is an agreement for him to be able to sell his shares at the same rate that Glenn Taylor is selling his. Interesting. So I guess I have a couple questions. First and foremost, Meyer Orbach, any relation to Jerry Orbach? No, I don't actually know that. And Meyer Orbach is from New Jersey. So like that's pretty close to New York, huh? I mean, Jerry Orbach was an actor playing uh, someone on Law & Order SVU. Jerry Orbach, rest in peace. I'm not sure if you know he passed away in 2004. Rest in peace, Jerry Orbach. But your, your legacy is carried on with Olivia and Elliot and all the fun gang over at, at Law & Order SVU. So yeah, that, that was obviously my most important question. Um, number two, here's my, here's my question to you, which I don't know the answer to this. Why is it that A-Rod could, could just buy out Taylor's shares without Orbach being involved? Is that, is that just not spoken to in the agreement? What Orbach is saying is that when uh, he brought this up, that they tried to exercise the tagalong rights, Taylor just ignored Orbit. And, uh, and that he's saying that he's not entering into a control sale with Rodriguez and Lori. He, he's saying that that is going to be a separate transaction years in the future. And there have been other deals like this, Dan, franchise sales, that's something that you've been looking into recently, where they kind of do a piecemeal approach. And sometimes it is to get around these contractual provisions. And so in this case, he's ignoring his minority uh, shareholders, and uh, and he's hoping to be able to complete the deal with A-Rod without Meyer Orbach being involved. Because here's, I mean, we talked about the last podcast, but you, you do, you know this, I'm looking into why someone would ever want to buy a minority share of a team. And this is just like, I don't know, exhibit 20. Like if you buy a minority shares of a team, congrats. You can call yourself an owner of a, an NBA team. Congratulations. And if the team ever gets sold with 100%, you know, if it, someone wants to buy 100% you know, stake in the team, great. You're, you're, I'm sure you're making great rate of return on, on your investment. But here's the thing. If the majority can just sell out and they don't have to sell 100% of the team, what are you really getting for your minority share? And then here's the other thing. Like, if I'm a billionaire, I guess A-Rod's not a billionaire. He's probably like a hundred millionaire. He's up there. Why would somebody need a hundred percent of the team, right? They'd only want the controlling percentage of the team. So I'm beginning to think more and more 
that buying a minority share of a team is just a bad investment. Someone can tell me otherwise, but I don't really know what you gain from it from a congrats. You own a luxury box in the stadium. Congrats. You can go to a bar and tell people how oh, you're a fancy owner of a professional team. But beyond that, it, there's no liquidity. I just don't, I didn't like, I don't know. There's better places to put your money. Why don't you put it in Doge coin? Why don't you put it in a, uh, don't put it in NBA top shot, but you know, you can put it in other, another nice places. What I think that the value is, is exactly what you're talking about. You mentioned a hundred percent sale. I'm not even sure that it has to, to be that. So now Glenn Taylor has sold something that he purchased in 1994 at $88 million. He's selling for $1.5 billion. I think that there is value if these tag along rights can be exercised for Orbit, for Meyer Orbach to make some real money, so some real return on investment. So I think that's probably where the value is. In addition to all of those aesthetic things like, uh, oh, I'm a big owner and oh, look at my luxury box to watch like a January Timberwolves Pacers game where the wolves are getting blown out. Is there an indication that A-Rod is actually trying to move the team? And where is he planning to move it? I don't know. if I mean, if you are looking on Twitter, yeah, sure, there's a lot of speculation that he might want to move it to Seattle, that he might want to move it to Vegas. All of those things have to be approved. Oh, Seattle with his Mariners ties. That's very interesting. That's right. I'm sure he's very beloved in a place where he left to go sign that big contract. Is A-Rod beloved anywhere? Like what, what fan base claims A-Rod is their own? The Yankees definitely don't. People who really like Sunday night baseball, but I mean, don't really like baseball. I have a story for you while, while, before we get off the topic of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I've been plowing through this. I just got through. So I listened to it, an audio book, this Loose Balls, that ABA book. So yeah. uh, T- Taryn, do you know who George Mikan is? Yeah, the Mike and Drill. Shaq paid for his funeral. He was a Minneapolis Laker. I guess he, it makes sense he's a Minneapolis Laker. So I know him. I knew he was a big guy. Uh, he's, uh, he's like a 6'10 center back in the day with giant goggles, but like pre, I guess he must have played in like the 50s. But he was the first commissioner of the ABA. And I guess he became a lawyer in the offseason. So when they were trying to, ABA was trying to compete with the NBA, they needed a legitimate commissioner to compete, you know, to look good with the NBA on optics. So they hired Mike and because he was a great basketball player and he was a lawyer, so they hired him, okay? Taryn, you'd love this because you're uh, you obviously go to Minnesota Law School. So uh, Mike King goes, well, NBA has their legal office in New York and we don't want to do what the NBA does. We want to compete with them. Let's put our headquarters for the ABA in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So the rest of the league goes, that's insane. Why are we putting the legal office in Minnesota? And he goes, well, I'm the commissioner. I want to have an office in Minnesota and I want to have a team in Minnesota. So the owner's like, okay, Mike, and whatever you say, as long as you're the commissioner. First year goes by, the first team in Minnesota fails and they, the team moves. I think they go to Florida. So then they move the team from Pittsburgh to Minnesota in the second year. And so they're like, okay, Mike, and we have your team in Minnesota. Like we have to move this other team now to Minnesota, Mike, and you're getting a little difficult. And Mike is like, but I need a team in Minnesota. So the second team fails in Minnesota. So everyone's like, we're done with Mike and basketball is not meant to be played in Minnesota. And this guy, Mike is screwing us over. He's making us look bad. Okay. So fast forward. So the ABA and the NBA are competing to sign uh, Lou Alcindor, who we now know as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So there used to be a rule back in the day that the NBA does not have, no longer has. You had to play four years in college before you could go to the pros. So the ABA is known for basically breaking that rule, the one and done rules from the ABA. But uh, I guess that's a story for another time. 
Lou Alcindor is trying to go to uh, an NBA team or he's going to go to an ABA team. He's not sure. So he tells the ABA and the NBA, guys, come forward with your best pitch to me. I want one pitch and one pitch only. Let's make it quick. And I want to make a decision. So he brings the ABA and the NBA into the same hotel. And he goes, I'm going to take meetings with both of you. So obviously Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a you know big center, big player. And Mikan's like, listen, I'm George Mikan. I'm Mr. Minnesota, Mr. Minneapolis. I want to be in this meeting. And the ABA people are like, okay, Mikan, but like you've messed up everything you've touched so far. Congrats. You made a red, white, and blue ball. You haven't really done anything else for us, Mikan. So he's like, no, 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 I won't mess it up. Don't worry. I'm George Mikan. I'm the greatest. So they go to him. They go, Mikan, here's the plan. Here's a $1,000 certified check that we've made out to, to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And we've done all this market research. We know that he keeps saying in interviews, he wants to buy his mom a mink coat with his first check. We want to make it really kind of symbolic. We want to hand him the check. We want to hand him the mink coat and get out of there. In and out. Five minutes. Don't make it a big thing. In and out. So Mike is like, oh, no problem. I got this. I'm George Mike. I'm the greatest of all time. <laughs> so the ABA people are waiting up in a hotel room. Mike leaves and he doesn't come back for five minutes. He doesn't come back for 15 minutes. He doesn't come back for three and a half hours. So... Finally, Mikan comes back and they're like, Mikan, what the hell took you so long? What's going on? He's like, I pulled a little bit of an audible, a little bit of a wild card. I decided to tell him about every single market in the NBA, in the ABA, in the NBA. And I said how we're going to help his influence. I started talking about New York and California. And they're like, Mikan, it's the exact opposite of what we told you to do. He's like, don't worry. Don't worry. I know that you guys said he said last and final, but he'll probably come back. And when he comes back a second time, I'll hand in the check and it'll work out great. Did Kareem Abdul-Jabbar ever play a minute in the ABA? No, he didn't. He did not. He went to the NBA and guess who was fired immediately as ABA commissioner? George Mikan. George Mikan. Correct. I think the fans of the ABA, I think they uh, were very pleased to see that the NBA developed some of their... I don't know, developed the slam dunk contest, came from the ABA, the three-point shooting contest, and the three-pointer also came from um, the ABA. Um, But I think the fans, Taryn, I think NBA fans are just starved for attention. Maybe they're starved for some good things to happen to them. All I know, Taryn, is that fans have been pretty unruly recently. Um, Taryn, you did such a good job with the lead-in to uh, the Wolves. (laughs) Want to give us the lead-in to the the fan chaos? The past couple weeks with the the fans returning to the – the ballparks and the stadiums has just been ridiculous. Even with these uh, limited capacities, I feel like it's been more attractive to troublemakers to try to get on the field or, you know, try to to get close to the players. It's been crazy that they're, uh, you know, pouring popcorn on guys. They're spitting on them in the middle of a pandemic. It's just ridiculous. Number one, a a fan in uh, in New York, we're going to imagine they're a Knicks fan, 50 Cent is sitting in the front row. Someone hawks a loogie over 50 Cent shoulder, hits Trey Young in the back. A fan, I think the game must have been in Philadelphia, but pours a bag of popcorn at Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook goes absolutely crazy, wants to fight the fan. You know, got, got popcorn poured on him. The third one was over the weekend. A Celtics fan, Kyrie steps on the Celtics logo at home court. He kind of smushes his foot around on the logo's head. And then he's uh, leaving the arena. Obviously, Kyrie used to play for the Celtics, so there's some bad blood there. And a fan from about, we'll say 10 rows up, throws what looks to be like a pretty much empty water bottle, maybe a little bit of water splishing around, but it whizzes right past Kyrie's nose. Maybe it hits it, maybe it doesn't hit it. And then the fourth one, it was Monday night, a fan at the Wizards uh, 76ers game, 
just runs out on the court and tries to, I guess, slap the backboard or touch the rim. I don't really know what he was doing, but it's not that these things haven't happened before. I'm sure people have been hit with water bottles. I'm sure they've been hit with much worse popcorn. But I think why people are, are talking about it so much recently doesn't really happen during the playoffs. Playoffs is like kind of sacrosanct, let alone four times and, and by my count about eight days. And Taryn, I'm, I'm sure you're reading the same stuff I am. It's like fans have been away from stadiums for so long that there's just pent up energy. Like, hey, I haven't been at the game for so long, or maybe these tickets are so expensive that I want to get my money's worth and do something stupid. I, I don't know. I, I can't really put my finger on it, but I just, I know in the history of my watching sports, this hasn't happened this amount of times, quantity in such a short period. What do you think? I think that it is happening more frequently, but I also think that there's just more coverage of it right now. Uh, I think there's not so much going on in terms of uh, sports games. Like we've got the NBA playoffs, but then there's baseball and not much else. So I think that the number of instances that have happened are just, they're getting magnified. And, and I think that they're also viewed in the context of the, you know, the social justice movement that happened last summer and then the larger player empowerment movement that's been going on for like the last decade. I think that those factors also color our view of, of what's been going on where, you know, the players are like, respect us and people are being disrespectful. I think it's important that this is very much a sports law topic. So we were both taught in law school and I'm sure it's the same in every jurisdiction Spitting on someone is a form of, I mean, it depends what jurisdiction you're in, but in New York, at least you call it assault. So I obviously use assault on Twitter to mean a lot of things that, you know, people think generally assault means you get you assaulted, you're hit by somebody. Spitting on someone counts as assault just because it's an offensive and harmful contact that occurs. So it's not going to put you in the hospital being spit on, but it is a crime to do it. Popcorn is probably in the same vein. You know, it's not going to not going to put you in jail, but you know, maybe it's a violation, maybe it's disorderly conduct, maybe it's criminal mischief, but it's somewhere in there. And let's skip to the fourth one, which I just, you know, I think is pretty straightforward. I think it's criminal trespass running onto the court at the uh, Washington Wizards game, running onto the court's criminal trespass. Now, here's the one that's been getting a lot of attention. I did a couple radio hits on it uh, over the past couple of days. I have a couple more over the, over the week, but that's the scene in Boston with this Kyrie Irving water bottle throw. Well, tell everyone I've seen it from a number of different angles. Every time I see it, it changes a little bit of my perception. But essentially, there's a fan sitting about 12 rows up. Kyrie steps on home court, I mentioned. And there's a row of Brooklyn Nets that are walking out. So this water bottle flies by Kyrie. If you're looking from the back, it doesn't look like it hits him. If you're looking from the side, it maybe grazes his nose. I don't know. Do, do you think it hits him? I guess that's my first question for you. I think the people that were around him says that it hits him. And if it's unclear, isn't it just going to go to witness testimony as to whether it hits him? And, and I realize that that's important, right? That's, they charged him with assault with a deadly weapon, right? Dangerous weapon, dangerous weapon, a little bit different. So here's the, well, I guess there's two parts of it. So in order to go from an assault, an assault, at least as I've explained it to people, you could spit on someone, you know, it's, a, it's, it's harmful in some sense. People really kind of view an assault if they're not, if there really isn't contact. So like, let's say someone balls up their fist and they go to fake punch you in the face. That's technically what we would call an assault. You're not really getting touched. You know, it's this apprehension of immediate physical bodily harm. So it's apprehension of immediate bodily harm. If I'm about to get punched in the face, like, okay, like I'm, I'm in apprehension of immediate bodily harm. I see the thing coming. Now, 
I get that. If you do the same punch to me on the back of the head, right? And I don't see you doing it to the back of my head. I don't, I don't really think I've committed assault. You didn't even see it. So how could you be in apprehension of immediate bodily harm? Here's the thing with Kyrie. It doesn't matter, at least from my vantage point, what the other witnesses said around Kyrie. If Kyrie himself didn't see it occur, I think he's going to have a lot of trouble saying that this reasonable, you know, apprehension. Like he doesn't, how could he be placed in apprehension of immediate bodily harm if he doesn't even know that it occurred, right? People around him had to tell him. So I guess that's number one. And number two, if it doesn't make contact, it can't be a battery by definition. So I think that's very important. I think the call of the game, I think all the different video cameras, I haven't been conclusively shown that it touched him or conclusively shown in any of the cameras that he reacted to it in a way that it touched him. So we're talking about the video. The video, it looks like he just kind of like walks and then um, realizes afterwards. And I'm not sure if he's realizing because is it Tyler Johnson that was in front of him that reacted or if he like felt it a second later, or if he saw it out of his periphery. So that would matter for the battery, right? But not for, uh, or would it matter for the assault also? He has to be aware of it for the assault. I think battery is just touching and touching is going to get you there. So you have to see, let's assume, let's assume it hits him. Let's assume it made contact with him, which is, I guess, when you, the reason this gets from basically a misdemeanor to a felony, which is why everyone's going crazy, right? Is this worthy of a felony? People are saying that it's an assault, a battery, plus with a dangerous weapon. So people are like, how is a water bottle a dangerous weapon? So at least the way that Massachusetts describes it, you know, what is a dangerous weapon? A dangerous weapon could be a gun. It could be a knife. It could be, I don't know, giant hundred pound boulder you're dropping on someone's head. I remember there was a, a case years ago in New York. People, uh, these kids dropped a, a turkey, a frozen turkey from the overpass and hit a car like, that's pretty dangerous. Pretty dangerous, especially when that goes through your window. So a water bottle, is it an instrument that's capable of causing great bodily harm? It depends. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of cop-out lawyer response, but if I'm in the, the upper deck of a baseball stadium and I throw a full unopened water bottle at a player in the outfield, like it's probably going to hurt a lot. It could knock a tooth out. It could break an orbital socket, break a nose. It's going to hurt a lot. So the question that I kind of posed on Twitter is like, it depends how full this water bottle was. If somebody said, this is the water bottle in its exact condition that was thrown at Kyrie Irving, and they bring me a water bottle with like just the backwash of water in it, like a millimeter of water, and they and this DA is like, this is a dangerous weapon when wielded by the right individual. Like the jury would laugh them out of the courtroom. If it's just a water bottle that hits you, it's like my wife, uh, I once threw a ping pong ball at her and she's like, ow, that hurt. I'm like, okay, you've lost all credibility in my eyes because I know that didn't hurt you. So, <laughs> but same, same deal. So I think it, it really does matter. If this isn't a dangerous weapon, it's not going to be a felony. And uh, I, I think this is, you know, just the conversation which we were getting into, which we should, which we, we should wrap up. But I don't know if you're sending a message to fans like, hey, chill out, okay, or else you're getting hit with a felony. This is a really big and maybe important message for people to hear. But I don't think this is actually a felony. I think the DA is just kind of for show putting this thing out there. I think that this is a message that they are taking it seriously. And just one other thing, Bradley Beal had a great quote. He was asked about it last night after the fan ran on the court in D.C. He said, you know, I don't want to use my my hood lingo, but these hands work, which I thought was just a great quote. And yeah, my money would be on Beal against nearly anybody. It made me think of, you know, Dan, like anytime somebody tweets out, like, what event do you wish that Twitter was around for? So like 
OJ Chase is always up there, but someone always says Malice in the Palace. We don't want to see that rehashed. The, Malice in the Palace was like gross. It would give us plenty of content, but I don't want to see the players being in that position. And I don't want to see the fans getting their asses kicked like that. So I don't want to wish ill upon anyone, but you know, I, I did mention it on, on Twitter. The Malice at the Palace was started when a fan, I don't know who it was, threw some cup we'll say one of those like souvenir cups, threw a cup of full liquid at Ron Artest. Ron Artest was laying on the scorer's table. Yeah. Tell everyone to, to, to look this up. And he's just laying on the scorer's table and someone hits him with something, whether it's beer, whether it's water, soda, it doesn't matter. So it's not really that much of a difference hitting someone with a water bottle versus a cup of soda. And what did Ron Artest do? He didn't wait for criminal charges. He took the law into his own hands, instantaneous justice, and went up there. I don't even know if he punched the right guy. I still no, don't know don't if he did. I don't think he did either. And then I remember when I, I think I was in high school when this happened, uh, Jermaine O'Deal, like my friends and I were watching this video over and over. He tries to punch somebody, but he does like a slip and slide on the floor with his plant foot and like punches through the guy's head. Let's just say that was a reminder for, for everyone and, and why we haven't seen an episode like this in years. That was really scary. These are the like maybe the best athletes in the world and you're stepping into their zone, right? You're throwing stuff at them. So, you know, I, I'm a little concerned that it puts players between a rock and a hard place. Like what are they supposed to do if something like that happens? And, and I put the onus on NBA security, you know, the stuff that fans have been getting away with for years is criminal, like no pun intended. And it just really hasn't been prosecuted. So, you know what? Good, good for the Boston Celtics arena. I don't even care if they, if they end up charging the guy with the felony, I really don't. But this guy is being raked through the coals on Twitter. It is just like social media justice at its finest. Like, you know, I, I think people will think twice about acting unruly at a game. Even if the kid, you know, it's a 21-year-old kid, obviously people make mistakes. You know, that's that's the world that we live in. Uh, his name is out there. ESPN's reporting it. All these media outlets reporting it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how the guy recovers from this. The video is pretty damning. I mean, you can watch it. It's clearly him in the Kevin Garnett jersey that throws it. So, yeah, I don't know how you get around this from a, from a complete exoneration perspective. I think he gets hit with something, hopefully you know, for his sake, it's not a felony, but yeah, I, I do see what, what the DA is trying to do with it. Speaking of which, that brings us to our third topic. So, uh, Taryn, you gave us this lovely lead in before about Marcelo Zuna, uh, who is currently on the injured list. Uh, I think he has some fractured fingers. So why are we talking about Marcelo Zuna, who has not played a major league baseball game in some time? Well, Marcelo Zuna was involved in an incident this past weekend. So Marcelo Zuna and his, um, his wife, have had an incident of domestic, let's say a domestic incident in the past. I believe the reports were that she hit him with some type of soap dish in the past. So I don't know, they've been in the news before for not the best reasons. Okay. Police respond to Marcelo Zuna's house and they come at a time when uh, these two are in the middle of some type of altercation. And I believe the reports are that police witnessed or heard Marcelo Zuna basically threaten I hate saying it, but that's just what the reports are. Threatened to do something very bad to his wife. And I believe police observed Ozuna strike his wife with his cast. You know, I, we can get into the finer points of this, but I guess why, why I, I wanted to have these two topics lead into each other. This is an incident, right? And we talked about the fan incident. They don't really need any any witnesses for, for the fan incident. It's caught on camera every single place. So even if people don't want to testify, they have the camera. They just need like a custodian to explain how the records and the videos are being kept. Marcelo Zuna, I mean, it doesn't matter if his wife wants to testify him or she's unwilling or whatnot. The police witnessed a portion, at least as is being reported, of this altercation. So now no longer it's a question of whether or not husband and wife will testify against one another, which is, you know, sometimes a, a really important roadblock in these domestic incidents. The police are now witnesses to this incident. So 
I don't see Marcelo Zuna getting off these charges so easily. According to the Georgia Commission on Family Violence, his wife's not going to be able to drop the charges once law enforcement submits them to the prosecutor. So that was one thing that I brought up to you on Twitter. Like, what if she drops the charges? That's not going to be a concern in this case. She's not going to be able to drop the charges. And I think that that, in one sense, it simplifies things that there's not going to be some gray area where the charges have been dropped, but police have witnessed this thing. But on the other hand, I think that it complicates things for the Braves. And obviously, we're not thinking just purely from a monetary perspective, but you know, this is a sports law podcast. So we're thinking about the sports element of it as well. And the Braves just signed Ozuna to a four-year, $65 million extension. There's at least $50 million still on the table, and they're not going to want to pay a guy who is representing their organization in this way. So what do you think, Dan? Are they going to be able to get out of this? And what are the factors that they're going to have to consider on the way there? We didn't mention it. it, it this is a, another felony, just coincidentally, a felony. I think it was called this, uh, aggravated assault strangulation, which is, an, I don't know, strangulation being its own crime. I don't know, it's interesting, but at least as far as I can tell, it comes with a minimum sentence of three years if convicted and a maximum of 20 years. So this is uh, the one in Boston with the fan is a 10-year maximum, three to 20 just on the felony with Marcelo Zuna. And there's a misdemeanor in there as well. I think it's battery or domestic battery, something like that. So yeah, I mean, it's a, a horrendous look. You know, obviously guys in Major League Baseball have had domestic violence incidents as a comeback. It's not saying that it's okay. I'm just saying that it's happened before. But yeah, this is a felony strangulation is the charge and you have police as witnesses. So I don't know, the optics aren't great. So I know there was an article out, I think it was Ken Rosenthal over at The Athletic, who's, you know, kind of opining that like, hey, this is, he's got $53 million left in his deal. Like the Braves have to make some type of decision. So Taryn, you and I were talking offline and it's just kind of an interesting difference between Major League Baseball and the NFL. I know because I was researching this maybe, I don't know, six months ago for whatever reason, but Michael Vick, when he got hit with his dogfighting charges and the whole mess, the Atlanta Falcons clawed back a certain amount of money from him. So people know very well that guaranteed money in the NFL is a little bit different than guaranteed money in Major League Baseball. And just the money and the contracts are very different between baseball and football. I find it very odd that the Braves are placed in this position where they have a player. Seems to be pretty strong evidence that the police are testifying it. They're putting in the police report that something of a domestic and really kind of, I don't know, it just a messy, disgusting situation occurred with Marcelo Zuna, and they have to decide, do we want to keep this guy in and get hit with the PR hit, or do we want to cut him and get hit with the financial hit? So, yeah, I don't I don't really think that's fair. And I think if you're the Major League Baseball Players Association, I know it doesn't really paint you guys in the best light either. Why, why are you defending, it, to the extent that Marcelo Zuna is convicted of a felony, let's play this all the way out, that your, your policies defend a felon? I mean, I don't, I don't really think that's that fair. I respect that the Players Association has to support its players, but the way that everything is organized, it's that no team has even tried to go after anybody who's been suspended under the domestic violence policy. So there's been 13 players that have been suspended under this, and during that time, they're not going to have to be paid. But other players, as we know, including Araldis Chapman and Roberto Ozuna, have come back, and, and even Domingo Ramon is back. So I don't think that they're going to be able to void the contract just because the language of the domestic violence policy doesn't list voiding of a contract as a potential solution. So Whose bright idea was that, though? I mean, why do you have a domestic violence policy in place if that can't be a suspension of the contract as one of the remedies? Well, suspension of the contract, sure. I mean, if he's suspended, they're not going to have to pay it. But 
but termination of the contract, a full cutting of ties without having to pay the remaining money on the deal. Oh, I guess I guess I mean suspension of the contract during the pendency of these charges or anything like that. But that's well, we'll have to wait for him to be put on some sort of restricted list. I imagine before they can stop paying him. If there's one thing that we've learned about Major League Baseball, I think in the last few years, it's that if there's been issues that they could overlook that would have been helpful to have an answer for in the current set of circumstances, it's that they've overlooked them. And that lack of communication is really just going to continue to create problems for the league, for the teams, for the players, for the union. And this is something that they're going to have to figure out because who's going to take all the slings and arrows in this case? It's going to be the Braves. How could you not release him? Well, we don't want to pay him for doing nothing, but also we don't want him representing our organization. It's just a really tough situation for the team to be in, I think. And and I know nobody feels bad for you know the billionaire team, but it's it's a tough situation when you're trying to represent your brand. So I, I remember, um, you know, just to go trip down memory lane, my uncle had season tickets to the Jersey Nets back in the day with, you know, Kenya Martin and Jason Kidd and Kerry Kittles, Keith Van Horn. So I remember being, um, I don't remember what year it was, but I remember being at a Nets game and a chant at a Nets game was directed at Jason Kidd, something along the lines of wife beater, or you, beef your, you beat your wife. And, you know, I was 12 or 13, right around there. And I didn't really know what beating your wife meant. I just knew that it was bad, but it was just an odd scene. And I'm looking back now, January 2001, kid was arrested for hitting his now ex-wife, pleaded guilty to spousal abuse and was fined order to take anger management. Just a really tough look for the team, tough look for the player, tough look for everyone involved. So I don't know if there's an easy disposition to this. It's just, it's not good for young fans of the game to be exposed to that. If Marcelo Zuna, you know, if the Braves have to make a decision, right, if Marcelo Zuna, if they're paying him, you know, if they want to play him, I don't know. I hate that this, this conversation's in, in the vernacular, but, you know, when you get charged with felony strangulation and there seems to be strong evidence against you, uh, I just, I don't like the options that the Braves have at this point. If they want to do the right thing, they're going to have to pay the price for it. And it sucks. It sucks that they can't just make a PR statement and just move on. It's got to be a well thought out decision when they're thinking about, you know, $53 million, that's no small chunk of change. But that said, Taryn, I, uh, at least uh, as I'm, I'm understanding it, this first domestic incident with his, uh, with his wife occurred pre-contract. Is that your understanding as well? Uh, yeah, that's in the past. And then this is the most recent one. Not that, I've, you know, you can say, uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but if that was an incident and, you know, maybe you tell the Braves and you're the Braves lawyer and you're someone that's directing this contract, maybe you think, hey, we need to plan in particular for this type of incident. It's happened before uh, and we need to we need to cover ourselves. So I don't know. I don't really know what you could do. Again, hindsight's twenty twenty. I just I feel bad for for everyone involved. You know, no one is going to come out of this for the better. And Marcelo Zuna is obviously an incredibly talented player. So, yeah, it's just just not a good look at any, at any level. Well, I think that people will de- determine how they're going to approach the Braves response by what they do next, right? Like there's a reason why the Yankees take a little bit more heat because they brought back Chapman after all of that, or, you know, that the Astros traded for Ozuna when those things were known. But if that's the policy that we have and the policy is not one and done, and and that's the end of your career, if you're um, proven to have done something like this, then the players are still eligible. And if they can help the team win, 
that is something that we have to find a way to square with our morality. I, I don't know. It's just, it's tough for, for everybody, I think. Speaking of being tough for Atlanta, that'll take us to our fourth topic of the day. So once upon a time, Major League Baseball had set the uh, Major League Baseball All-Star Game in Atlanta. I think, I believe the intention was to honor the late, great Hank Aaron. We'll say the one true home run king, even though you and I are both San Francisco Giants fans. So he's, he's the guy that did it first. So game is supposed to be in Atlanta. We've covered this in a previous podcast. You can go through our archives. But the game was then moved to Denver, Colorado over, if you want to believe the reports. And I never think they're reports. I think Major League Baseball was pretty open about it, that they were moving it because they did not agree with the voter laws that were passed over in Georgia. So, Taryn, you and I had a fun debate. And I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, hey, them moving the game to Denver will make the story go away. It will not be a story anymore. I promise you we will not cover it on the podcast and it will not be relevant. Major League Baseball made the right decision to move the game. And I said quite the opposite. This story will pop up again, Taryn, and I can almost guarantee it. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, mea culpa. I I, uh, I had that one wrong. Yeah, I mean you can you can stand up for your position. You don't have to just admit it. I don't think you're. No, no, no. I I mean I I. So look, in one sense, yeah, the the story was gone. MLB has not had to discuss voter ID laws up till this point, but now they have to address it in this lawsuit, right? Like, because the lawsuit alleges, hey, MLB, why do you require ID at will call? And so you know they're going to have to respond to it again. I. I but it's, doesn't this seem like it was a no-win situation also? They were going to get hammered by the by the media about the the voter bill if they didn't move it. It was going to be how tone deaf is MLB. Of course, it's a game for old, stodgy white men. They don't understand anything about like the way that the world is going to be in the future and how could they not be responsive to the pain of their players and not understanding that this voter ID law hurts people that look like them. And you can make those points and they're probably partially in good faith that the players were adamant that there should be some response, some reaction by major league baseball. Dave Roberts was talking about it. Francisco Lindor mentioned it. And these are premier players in the league and major league baseball also doesn't want to anger them. So no win situation. It's just, it's just a tough spot. I don't, I don't know what else to say. What? Oh, are you laughing? This is a serious matter. No, I, I'm laughing because like, okay, they're, they're damned if they do. They, they, they were damned if they did nothing. I'm not fighting with you anymore. I think no, I'm right. I, I'm, I'm just reveling we're, in we're my victory. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out like what exactly was the right response. I think there was no right response. There was going to be people were going to be pissed either way. But that's I said this once on Twitter and, and people got mad at me. And then I realized like I just shouldn't say this. But like, you know, I, I don't like politicians getting involved with sports one way or the other people. I'm not saying keep sports and politics separate. I'm a big believer in if the fan or if, if the players of the sport want to act a certain way, it's their sport. They can do whatever they want. They want to have names in the back of the jersey, civil rights movements on the court. I don't. I'm all. I'm all in support of it. But I, I feel maybe it's the, the the person in me that is kind of like apolitical. Like I'm, you know, I, I'm passionate about sports. I'm not that passionate about politics. But you you have a scenario where like there's the left way to view this issue and there's the right way to view this issue, and there's nothing in between. So you, you're going to get people angry when you make a political stance on an issue. That's that's all I was saying. I don't necessarily agree or disagree with what baseball did. I just think that you invite politicians into this debate. So anytime people 
you know, now, like the story came up, I tweeted out, there were people that were saying, you know, baseball should lose their antitrust exemption. You know, the politicians should go after them. And our Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley had that big statement. So you're going to piss someone off if you if you make a political statement. So just the nature of the beast. So I guess here, here's where the lawsuit comes in. It's a basically a $100 million lawsuit that's filed by business owners in the area. And they're saying, hey, most of the time when you have these big all-star games, it generates somewhere between $37 million and $100 million, $190 million in previous all-star games. And, you know, there was a big investment made in the city or in the, I guess in the adjacent county of Cobb County. And we have a right to some of that money. So either reimburse us for the money that we lost because you moved the game because we were anticipating it. And I guess it's, I guess it's a form. I was trying to, I was having a conversation with a lawyer on uh, Twitter. I'll shout him out. Mark McDaniel. He's a lawyer over in Missouri. So we were going back and forth and he's like, what do you think the causes of action are? And I'm like, I don't know. It seems to be a lot like quasi contract, like almost like detrimental reliance. Cause these like third party business owners, they don't have any direct privity or any type of direct contractual relationship with major league baseball. So we're obviously not suing for breach of contract. I don't even think they necessarily have standing to sue. You know, here we are with, with another lawsuit that grabs the headlines. Congrats to them. But I don't really think there's so much meat in the overall claims. Am I missing something on this? Sounds a little bombastic. The complaint alleges that the league purposefully and maliciously decided on punishing the small business owners when it moved the game out of Atlanta. That seems like it's going to be hard to prove. Why are they purposefully and maliciously going after small business owners? I feel like they're just incidental harm to this. If you wanted to say that it was promissory estoppel, then yeah, maybe that's a better argument, but I'm not sure how much of a argument there is for them here. Like you said. Yes. For a hundred million dollars. Congratulations. And then you say, or we want the game to come back to Cobb County on July 13th. So here's the, uh, the litigator in me. If you really cared about the game to be back in Cobb County on July 13th, you know what you would have done? You would have moved for an expeditious emergency injunction and you would have to try to get the game to come back. So you would have done that. You wouldn't have filed a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit for monetary damage. Oh, by the way, we also want the game to come back. No, this is all about the vengeance. This is a financial, financial lawsuit. So I don't I don't like when people do that. Like, you know, why aren't they? I'm sure it would be. I mean, I know at least when I filed injunctions in the past, it's an emergency order. You have to go to court. You know, you have to you have to pay for the appearances. I don't know. Let's see if this, imagine this lawyer is probably doing it in some form of a contingency just because of the amount of uh, people he's bringing in. But yeah, uh, not the best look if you lose in the emergency order to show cause or whatever you want to call it, whatever, whatever state we're in over in Atlanta. Yeah, I think this is all just a money grab. And listen, give these guys some credit. You know, they win the headlines. That's, that's half the battle on these, these lawsuits, winning the headlines and getting a lot of attention behind the lawsuit. I don't think Major League Baseball is going to do anything about this. I think as we've seen from Major League Baseball, they are not inclined to settle these cases. Major League Baseball, I don't know, not so long ago, a couple months ago, took on the insurance companies. So they're not scared of a little bit of litigation. I can assure you, Major League Baseball fights you tooth and nail in court. So I don't think this lawsuit is, is going to go anywhere, but it's an interesting headline. I don't, definitely don't definitely don't think the, law, the All-Star game is coming back to Atlanta. I can uh, almost certainly say that. No, it's not. And, uh, and I think that Major League Baseball in any response would point out that they did give a certain amount of money to local small businesses that were going to be affected, especially those that were a minority owned in the area. So I think that this is a nothing burger, but bummer for those businesses. So I guess my what to watch for is something that I watched this past weekend, but I am going to go down the rabbit hole uh, of Indy 500. So I, I've been telling people Formula One, Drive to Survive. It's a great show. It's, it's very good on Netflix. 
but it's like the kind of the gateway drug to uh, other, you know, formula, uh, I guess, IndyCar. Uh, I'm not into NASCAR yet, but I just say, I think what I like about Formula One, they just tell great stories on Drive to Survive. And when you tell a great story, I can get into it. You can give me any type of great documentary, I'll get into it. But I think that's what Drive to Survive did. It gives you the kind of characters, it explains to you what's going on behind the scenes, the wives, the parents, you can kind of understand why, uh, you know, why people are so, you know, invested in Formula One. So then I called up, I guess we'll say friend of the show, Jeff Rickard over at ESPN uh, Indiana or Indianapolis, which I was on this morning. And I texted him and I said, I know you, you follow the race, the Indy 500. I'm kind of getting into it with Formula One. I know it's on. Uh, it was on actually on Sunday. I go, who should I bet on? So he gives me seven names of people uh, for the Indy 500 that I have never heard of in my life. I've never heard of any single one of them. And he says, bet a little bit on this guy, a little bit on this guy, sprinkle a little bit on this guy. And, uh, you know, so... I look at the overall amount of the wager and I'm like, eh, I think, I think I'm okay with this, but like, how is it possible that all seven of these guys lose? Like, it's just probably not going to happen, right? Someone's got to finish in top three. Someone's got to finish in top five. Um, and Taryn, what do you know? None of them finished in the top five. So I lost all of my money. Listen, I had a lot of fun watching it. I was at a friend's house. We were flipping back and forth between the Knicks uh, Hawks and the Indy 500. And rest assured, if you're listening to this podcast, and you think that I'm crazy for watching the Indy 500, everyone in the room thought I was insane. And when I tried to explain the pit stop strategy, the room thought I was even crazier. So yeah, maybe drive to survive and then slowly work your way like I did in the YouTube rabbit hole, a black hole of research that is YouTube for Formula One, YouTube for Indy 500. I'm in there, Taryn. I'm, I'm deep in the weeds of auto racing. You weren't the only one watching. I saw that the Indy 500 set the record for post-pandemic number of people in the stands. So that's awesome. At some point, I might have to go down to this Indy 500. This is pretty crazy. These cars go 230 miles an hour. It's pretty nuts. And Taryn, how about yourself? Well, you know, this past weekend, watched a lot of baseball. My Duke Blue Devils won their first ACC tournament championship ever. Their first ACC title since 1961. So uh, shout out to Chris Pollard and those guys. Uh, they've been doing a great job. They've won 12 straight games, and now they're headed to Knoxville for the uh, Knoxville Regional. Uh, so good luck to them. Well, not to be outdone, my Nebraska Cornhuskers won the Big Ten Baseball Championship. Taren, Duke is going down, Nebraska Cornhuskers forever. Dan, let's make a deal. If they both end up in Omaha for the College World Series, we'll, we'll go watch you mean I'll go to your house and, and watch it with you? No, we're, we're going to Omaha. Okay, so fun fact. This is an update. If any of my Nebraska followers are, are listening to this, we talked about it in the podcast before, but Nebraska is playing Fordham in the home opener. So I got a lot of messages uh, that I have to go to the game, or else I have to turn in both of my fandom cards, my Rams card and my Cornhuskers card, which is not fair. Don't do that to me because, you know, I have a pregnant wife. Rachel is due towards the end of July. So, you know, my schedule is pretty much off limits for June and July. And then afterwards, it's like, okay, when am I going to leave my wife who's just, uh, you know, has two kids and a yappy but loving dog at home for, you know. So, you know, my, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a tough spot for, for my fandom in the next couple of months. But that's just, this is being a new dad, Taryn. I feel, I feel like I can watch the game effectively from my couch and root on and tweet and all that fun stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, that you are safer being there for your wife. I think so too, because I think I might go on this trip to, to Lincoln or Omaha and I might come back without a wife. I might be just locked out of the house permanently. And this, this, we can't have happen. <laughs> the girls will have taken over. 
the girls are currently taking over. I'm outnumbered. I'm at number three to one right now. It's about to be four to one, which is just fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, Taryn, anything else to add before we put this episode in the books? No. Shout out to our, our girl, Stephanie. She officially graduated. Good dude. Good dudette. Yep. Good, good dudette. Shout out to Stephanie. Shout out to you for starting to work. Shout out to Dan. At some point, we'll get Dan back on the podcast. But this Eastern Standard Time, Russia Standard Time, RST, it's very uncommonly used. Yeah, I guess it's a thing. Are, are we going to have to pull like a Tom Cruise extraction mission to get him out of Siberia? I miss Dan. Maybe, maybe. Uh, Dan, if uh, if you're in trouble, just uh, ping me and I'll come save you. I'll fly in on the Lust Express. And Mike, you get a shout out for being yourself because Mike, you are the man. Mike. If Mike was on the podcast, I know it is what to watch for. It would be, it would be that, that scoundrel, Jake Paul, fighting uh, Mr. Woodley, which uh, there's no chance that Paul Brother is going to win that fight. I can almost <laughs> guarantee that. That said, we will put this episode in the books. I am at Sports Law Lust on Twitter and Instagram. Taryn is at TK Sharma Law. And uh, for the rest of us at Conduct Detrimental, we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.